Hi, and welcome to the Pelvic Rehab Research Podcast. My name is Becca Bissadolshemsky, and I'll be your host guiding you as we take a deep dive into all things pelvic floor and research-based. Whether you're a pelvic newbie or a seasoned clinician, I'm here to help busy therapists listen through the Women's Health Study Guide. So if you're studying for the Women's Certified Specialist Exam or just interested in learning more about pelvic health research, we've got you covered. Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Pelvic Rehab Research Podcast. So today is technically our second episode, but it's our first episode where we're going in depth on one of the research articles. So that research article is going to be in the week one of the study guide. It's the co-activation of the abdominal and pelvic floor muscles during voluntary exercises, written by Sapsford, Hodges, Richardson, Cooper, Markwell, and Jewell. So the goal of this article was to, to determine the response of the abdominal muscles to voluntary contraction of the pelvic floor muscles. This was investigated in women with no history of symptoms of stress urinary incontinence to determine whether there is co-activation of the muscles surrounding the abdominal cavity during exercises for the pelvic floor muscles. So the introduction of this article goes on to discuss conservative management of stress urinary incontinence tending to focus on isolated pelvic floor contractions that the focus of management of stress urinary incontinence is to isolate the pelvic floor muscles on their own, either by themselves or with a biofeedback machine or with neuromuscular stimulation. They discuss that the use of hip adductors and gluteals during pelvic floor exercises are often considered incorrect as they might concur without the co-activation of the pelvic floor muscles, as well as abdominal muscle activity being present that there's a concern that there may be increase in straining or bladder pressure, which would aggravate the original condition. So the authors go on to discuss some preliminary evidence from studies of women without any pelvic floor muscle dysfunction that noted the activity of the rectus abdominis muscle contraction in association with pelvic floor contraction. There was also co-activation of the abdominal and pelvic floor muscles in functional activities like head and shoulder raising and some palpable tightening of the abdominal muscles noted clinically in association with the pelvic floor muscle contraction. So those were the articles that the authors included to support their theory that the pelvic floor and the abdominal muscles co-contract in normal function. Prior research to this article was limited to the superficial abdominal muscles, although recent literature in comparison to this article's timeline of 2001 provided that EMG evidence of the intramuscular abdominal muscles had a differentiation of function. The authors argued the transverse abdominus was more associated with the development of intra-abdominal pressure, was recruited first for spine-stabilizing tasks, as well as for expiratory tasks. They further theorized that lumbar spine placement would change the length tension properties of abdominal muscles and may influence their response to pelvic floor muscle contraction. So remembering that the transverse abdominus has that horizontal fiber orientation, the authors theorized that spinal flexion and extension would minimally affect the response of the muscle. And just to clarify, it would be that transverse abdominus muscle that would minimally change regarding any lumbar spine position changes. All right, so then let's get into the methods. The subjects were seven Paris women with a history of vaginal deliveries. The exclusion criteria when they were finding subjects was any history of pelvic floor dysfunction, any history of low back pain within six months, any major abdominal or pelvic surgeries, 
any major neurological or respiratory conditions, although major wasn't technically defined within the article. Um, any regular performance of sit-ups or abdominal muscle training was also excluded. Let's get a little bit more in depth and information on the subjects that they chose. So there is a main experiment, which I'm going to be going into right now, and then there's an additional experiment, which we'll talk about later. For the main experiment, the average age was about 49 years, whereas the range included women from 39 to 64 years old. The average height was 5.4 inches. The average weight was 122 pounds. The average parity was 2.2 children, um, ranging from 1 to 4. And the maximum birth weights for those children was anywhere from 6 to 10.8 pounds. Getting into electromyography, just as an aside, the authors put internal oblique and external oblique shortened as OI and OE. So for any other therapists who document obturator internists as OI, you're probably sharing the same struggle with me reading this article and just like your brain is just picturing an entirely different muscle. (laughs) So the EMG recordings of the left side of the transverse abdominis, the internal and external oblique, and the rectus abdominis were made using fine wire electrodes. If you want to see what type of diameter or what type of electrodes they used, read the article, go for it. But I'm just going to go ahead and give you the placement information. The electrode insertion was preceded by an anesthetic cream, and it was performed under real-time ultrasound imaging. The transverse abdominis electrode was placed two centimeters medial to the proximal end of a line drawn vertically down from the ASIS to the ribcage. The internal oblique electrode was two centimeters medial and superior to the ASIS. The external oblique electrode was halfway between the iliac crest and the rib cage in the mid axillary line, and the rectus abdominis electrode was two centimeters lateral to the midline at the level of the ASIS. For the pelvic floor, EMG recordings were made from the pubococcygeus muscle using a periform intravaginal probe electrode, and standardized procedures were performed for EMG normalization prior to all of the testing. So moving into procedure, the patients were placed into a crook lying position, which if you Google it, is the same thing as hook lying. And I realize there's two camps of people. There are people who call it crook lying and there are people who call it hook lying. So learn something new every day. Okay. The patients are put in a crook lying position on a firm surface with the hips flexed to 60 degrees. Subjects performed maximal contractions of their pelvic floor muscles in three different lumbar spine positions, and the positions order were all randomized. So the first of three positions was lumbar flexion with the pelvis supported on a wedge of folded towels to hold the lumbar spine at the end range of flexion. The second position was lumbar extension with the lumbar spine maintained an end range extension with a rolled towel and inflated pressure cuff underneath the spine. And the third position was a neutral position with the spine maintained in a comfortable mid-range position between flexion and extension. Once positioned, a baseline EMG recording was taken of the patient without voluntary activation of the pelvic floor or the abdominal muscles. 
Subjects then performed three contractions of the pelvic floor muscles with verification by digital palpation by an experienced clinical physiotherapist intravaginally. Subjects were instructed to draw in, close around the vagina, and lift the pelvic floor up towards the head. On initial assessment of the pubococcygeal activity, each subject was able to contract voluntarily the pubococcygeus on command and sustain the contraction for more than five seconds. Based on the Oxford Muscle Scale, the group graded between 2 and 5 out of 5. For the main experiment results, when the pelvic floor contracted maximally in a hook-line position, all abdominal muscle EMG activity increased in at least one of the lumbar spine positions. In neutral spine, there was an increase in EMG activity above baseline for all of the abdominal muscles with pelvic floor contraction. And just remember that they were recording that pubococcygeus muscle for the pelvic floor. Some take-homes for the results, one being that the lumbar extension position noted less EMG activity of the external obliques than in neutral and in flex. The second take-home is that the transverse abdominus EMG amplitude was increased the most with pelvic floor contractions regardless of lumbar spine position. Third, the rectus abdominus EMG activity increased from baseline but was not significant throughout any lumbar spine positions. And lastly, the external obliques amplitude was significantly different between spinal positions. It was much higher in a lumbar spine extension, and it was much lower in the lumbar spine flexion, whereas all the other abdominal muscles showed much less variability throughout lumbar spine position changes. So before I go into discussion and conclusion, I wanted to backtrack a little bit to that additional pilot experiment I discussed a little bit earlier. Recordings were made from the pubococcygeus and the abdominal muscles during the opposite task so the voluntary contraction of the abdominal muscles. There was only two subjects. Um, they both had a history of vaginal deliveries. Subject one was a 40-year-old. She had a history of two vaginal births with a max birth weight of 3 pounds and 5 ounces. She was 123 pounds, and she was 5 foot 7 inches. Subject two was a 60-year-old. She had two vaginal births. The maximum weight of those were 6 pounds and 4 ounces, she was 116 pounds, and she was 5 foot and 2 inches. The exclusion criteria was the same as the main study. The EMG recordings of the left transverse abdominus, the internal and external oblique were made according to the same as the main experiment, and recordings were made from the rectus abdominus in one of the subjects. For the pubococcygeus, fine wire electrodes were fabricated in an identical manner to the main experiment. The electrodes were inserted by an experienced gynecologist under digital guidance to a depth of one centimeter into the right pubococcygeus through the lateral vaginal wall. Accuracy of the placement was confirmed by observation of EMG activity and the cephalid movement of the needle during a voluntary pelvic floor muscle contraction. So the contractions of the abdominal muscles were performed with the subject lying supine with the hips slightly abducted and the lumbar spine in a neutral position. They focused on two different isometric abdominal muscles contractions. One was hollowing and the other one was bracing. Hollowing was described as an isometric abdominal muscle contraction that aimed to target the transverse abdominus and the internal oblique. The maneuver was to involve gently drawing the lower abdomen in towards the spine. Breathing was maintained during that contraction. For bracing, that was identified as an isometric abdominal muscle contraction that aimed to contract the external oblique and the transverse abdominus and the internal oblique. 
For that maneuver, subjects were told to tighten their abdominal wall and increase the lateral diameter of the waist. Trials were recorded with and without breathing. The subjects were also allowed to practice three to five times of each of them until they were performed to the best of their ability on the basis of the EMG observation. Baseline EMG activity was recorded before the performance of the abdominal contractions and then two repetitions of each maneuver, hollowing, bracing with breathing, and bracing with breath held, were performed in a random order and held for five seconds. All contractions were performed without the visible movement of the lumbar spine, the pelvis, or the rib cage, which was different than the original experiment with all those different lumbar spine positions. So although the aim in this pilot study was to compare the pubococcygeus contraction, only one of the two was able to achieve the proper bracing and hollowing techniques. And as most people know as a therapist, getting only five times to try those maneuvers is really difficult sometimes for patients to coordinate. The subject who struggled the most was contracting the external oblique predominantly, but very little transverse abdominis. And I thought it was interesting because they also noted that that minimal transverse abdominis was contracted and the EMG showed very minimal pubococcygeus contraction as well. So it seems like they like to contract together and they like to not contract together. Bracing without hollowing increased the pubococcygeus the most, but with only two of those subjects, there's very little statistical analysis that's able to be done there. So with the discussion and conclusion, this study provided some evidence that the increased activity of the abdominal muscles, including the transverse abdominis, that obturator internus, oh my gosh, I almost made it the whole time without messing it up, the internal oblique, the external oblique, and the rectus abdominis occurs as a result of maximal activation of the pelvic floor muscles. Additionally, the data from the preliminary experiment, that small pilot study, indicates that the opposite situation also occurs with the increase in pubococcygeus EMG in response to the isometric contraction of the abdominal muscles. So those findings indicate that the abdominal muscle activity should be expected and not necessarily avoided during the performance of pelvic floor muscle training. So as we know, there's many different ways to exercise the abdominal wall. And the maneuvers used in that small pilot study were selected to recruit only specific abdominal muscles, specifically that abdominal hollowing for the transverse abdominis and the internal obliques, as well as the abdominal bracing, which was focused on that external oblique and that transverse abdominis. However, they noted in both of the subjects who performed the hollowing, even though one subject didn't do it properly, there was still an increase in the pubococcygeus muscle. So they're not sure that precision and accuracy is necessarily mandatory in order to notice an improvement in your pelvic floor contraction. And similar to the hollowing, the bracing maneuver, which is typically known for a low back pain, um, lumbar stability exercise, there was still an increase in the pubococcygeus activity that was actually larger with this task than with the hollowing. And obviously there was only two subjects. There's going to need to be a lot more further research required in order to determine a response in non-symptomatic and especially for our patients, those symptomatic populations. All right, so if I lost you on any of that or you're really paying attention to driving or something else right now, listen up to this last bit. Um, 
The point of this research article is that they found that if abdominal muscle activity is discouraged during pelvic floor exercise, this may limit the optimal pubic coccygeus response. A flexed lumbar spine during pelvic floor exercising could have a similar effect as well. Additionally, they believe that submaximal deep abdominal isometric holds, similar to what we do for spinal stability training for low back pain, may potentially be used to enhance that pubococcygeus training. Obviously, further research is required regarding symptomatic populations. But their current opinion is that the abdominal muscle activity should not be discouraged in clinical training of the pelvic floor muscles, and that should be a reconsidered practice. All right, so for those of you who are the WCSers and following the study guide, um, week one, female development and anatomy, before this article were those three Erian chapters, um, chapter six, 17, and 27. And then following this article, there's two more in the week one study guide. So the next podcast is going to be by way in 2004, the functional anatomy of the pelvic floor and urinary tract. Um, just as a piece of information for the Erian book, I personally didn't buy the physical textbook. I got the the online one. I rented it. Um, that one is a hard one to find. So if you can manage to read stuff digitally, highly recommend. I, I honestly couldn't really find the Erian textbook for, I think, under $400. Um, digital, I don't prefer it, but it worked for me for, you know, 20% of the price. Um, but yeah, so we'll go over the we or way article in 2004 regarding functional anatomy of the pelvic floor and the lower urinary tract next. So thank you for joining me today and I look forward to hopefully seeing you guys listening for our next one.